everyone. Luke here. Well, uh, it's that time of the show where uh, I actually remember to mention that Michael and us has a Patreon. That's right. Even though we rarely remember to advertise that fact to you, you can find an extra episode every single week at patreon.com slash Michael and us uh, for five Yankee dollars a month, which is about uh, $6.45 in the Queen's currency if you happen to be listening from Canada. Uh, in addition to the free episodes, we also publish bonus content, uh, including but not limited to interviews that I do in my day job at Jacobin uh, and other treats. So if you enjoy the free episodes uh, and want to give your old buddies, Will and Luke, some love, go to patreon.com slash Michael and us and enjoy twice the content every week. Uh, you'd also be doing us a huge solid by rating the show on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a second, uh, leaving a review. Apparently that helps us game the algorithms. On with the show. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Uh, Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. I was uh, horrified by an article I saw in the Wall Street Journal this morning, your favorite publication. Uh, the title was, There's a New Media Mogul Tearing Up Hollywood. It's about Warner Brothers' new CEO, David Zaslov. Uh, he just started at Warner Brothers, and the opening of the article is, Days into his role as CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zaslov gathered movie studio executives and grilled them about a recent string of box office flops, including Cry Macho, a Clint Eastwood neo-Western. Warner Brothers executives conceded they had doubted the movie would turn a profit. Why, Mr. Zaslov asked, was Cry Macho made if they had reservations? When they replied that Mr. Eastwood had given the studio many hits and never delivered a movie late or over budget. He, <laughs> when they explained who Clint Eastwood was. <laughs> he answered, we don't owe anyone any favors. It's not show friends, it's show business, he told them, quoting from the 1996 Tom Cruise movie, Jerry Maguire. <laughs> and listen, I just, I'm just laying down the gauntlet right here. I know some of you hear Clint Eastwood and you think, oh, 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 he talked to a chair. Get that out of your head. This is a pro Clint Eastwood <laughs> podcast. The man is an American icon. Uh, and, he, and he is still a force. The Mule was just a few years ago. Sully was just a few years ago. He's still out there rocking and rolling. And this, this is the kind <laughs> of thinking that has gotten us into the the <laughs> cultural dead zone that we're in right now so i just want to induct a brand new enemy of the podcast <laughs> warner brothers discovery ceo david zaslov i'm bringing back al goldstein's old fuck you segment that he would do on his weekly show fuck you david zaslov <laughs> uh 30 years from now clint eastwood will still be making movies he'll be making a movie about a heroic garbage man who foiled a terrorist <laughs> attack and he'll be 125 years old and he'll be collecting oscars but you david zaslov will be resting unmourned having contributed nothing to either the world or the proud legacy of warner brothers the what makes me upset in fact is that clint eastwood 92 years old has to read this now a man who has given us so much a man who gave us unforgiven a man who gave us the bridges of madison county has to wake up and open the wall street journal which i guarantee he reads i, I he's a bloomberg voter i'm sure he reads it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's been on your mind luke i'll get off my soapbox but literally no issue has ever made me more mad <laughs> 
Well, I've been mildly interested uh, of late in the phenomenon of, I guess, the the two richest men in the world becoming more active on Twitter. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of Bezos's tweets, but they have a real like, you know, I'm a billionaire who just got divorced energy and I have some free time on my hands. I don't understand why anybody with uh, that much money bothers with Twitter at all. I mean, they just can't resist. I mean, J.K. Rowling, right, is the famous example. Like, notwithstanding all the appalling stuff that she said, just the mere fact of her being on Twitter surprises me. Well, it's like Charles Foster Kane, you know? You can have all the money in the world, but it can't buy people liking you. So, I mean, Musk, I feel like, has kind of taken on a sort of Trumpish quality where he's just, like, constantly being the main character of Twitter. Uh, The problem is... He's he's not as entertaining as Donald Trump, right? Not by a long shot. His tweets are a mixture of these kind of like generic pleas for moderation, like, oh, you know, I used to vote Democrat, you know, when they were moderates, and now they've moved to the, you know, woke extreme left or whatever. They're a mix of that and then just sort of like garden variety, like soft edgelord Reddit shit. But he had this tweet earlier today that uh, the tweet itself's not good, but I think uh, the implications of it are funny. And I should say we're recording this, uh, I don't know, 30 minutes after this uh, Business Insider scoop just dropped, which by the time you listen to this, I'm sure you will all have read. Of course, Musk has had a bunch of other tweets over the past few days where he's been saying stuff like, the political attacks on me over the next few months are going to escalate, you know, brace yourself, strap yourselves in. And, you know, people were joking, like, in the last few days, hmm, I wonder what incriminating story is going to come up that he's going to try to discredit. It's like, well, I guess now we know. There'll probably be a few more. But he had this tweet about seven hours ago where he just just said, a party more moderate on all issues than either Republicans or Dems would be ideal. And I really like that sentiment coming from the world's richest man. I love how many guys, you know, you have your reactionary billionaires, you know, the Koch brothers and people like that, Peter Thiel, you know, these people who are very activist, you know, and, you know, might have actually read like Ayn Rand's 80 page novella Anthem or something like that. But I much prefer when these union busting assholes that are worth like 10 million times the median income are more like, you know, Howard Schultz or something like that. When their whole shtick is just about how like we need to find the center of the center because like we haven't found that yet our existing political center doesn't embody it enough i mean andrew yang and his whole forward party thing is basically like that but it's funny i think given you know all the alarmism about you know some kind of like right wing or fascist takeover of uh, the american government to think about what an alternative that might be where you know elon musk and howard schultz and andrew yang and guys like that team up to form some kind of like technocratic junta that overthrows you know the the u.s state and then you know just like all of the policy outcomes are exactly the same as as there is now. Because that's what I always find so funny about this stuff is the implication that the corporatist political center isn't already in power and isn't already like the default mode for like, you know, 95% of people that have any power or influence in the United States. Anyway, when the time comes, I am sure I will be on board to support the corporatist push that will finally make the elusive dream of actually existing crystallism a reality in our lifetime. You're right that he's become kind of the main character of Twitter, and Twitter has been without one for a while now. Perhaps we talk about Twitter too much on this podcast, but uh, hey, it's where I live. It's felt to me like there's been this extraordinarily ambient bad feeling there over the last two years. Since they, <laughs> since they banned Trump, you mean? Yeah. And, you know, listen, there's been an ambient bad feeling for, everywhere. For a while. Yeah. But, but you know, this is this is just one part of it. Back when there was one guy who who so many different factions could agree on was like, the, the the worst guy, like the big bad. 
the one where all the energy was focused, there was more order, there was more coherence. But now everybody's just sniping at everyone now. No one knows where to direct that energy. And you do see a bit of that now uniting around Elon Musk for people who are liberal or further left of liberal. I blocked Elon Musk on Twitter just because I don't like seeing his tweets. I don't enjoy them. Trump's tweets, you know, Trump had at least 50 of them that have entered the lexicon, you know, (laughs) like, I'll I'll keep drinking their garbage. I mean, Trump could move mountains, right? Like with a single tweet, like when he tweeted uh, Kafifi. We're still talking. Like we're still talking about Kafifi. Speaking of Chris Elizzi, he wrote an article about Kafifi last week. Merry Christmas, even to the haters and losers, (laughs) you know, all that. These are classics. These are American classics. They should be in like a penguin class. The Library of Congress. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Musk doesn't have that. I mean, I just I just don't like his tweets. They're not funny. They're they're annoying. They're also not original either. Uh, So now my timeline is just people uh, quote dunking a tweet that I can't see. And I always think, that's nice that I don't have to see that. Trump blocked me in 2014 or something. That's pretty wild that you were blocked by the president of the United <laughs> States. Well, I mean, it, you know, it was before he was president. It was in that era where he was playing the president in Sharknado 2, you know, <laughs> so it was a it was a different time. But I mean, you know, for five years, uh, Twitter was basically just, for me anyway, a tweet that I couldn't see. With, with some incredibly yeah. witty retort. Yeah, I mean, just people like, quote, tweeting, you know, oh, I see the toddler-in-chief has logged on or whatever. And I don't know, you know, Musk's tweets have very quickly taken on that same quality, except like, you know, he's not a he's not a showman. He's not a performer in the way that Trump is. You don't get that kind of amusement out of it. I have been thinking, you know, and I was thinking uh, before this Business Insider story dropped, that Musk's takeover of Twitter uh, was seeming less and less likely. I mean, we'll have to actually see what happens, but his behavior just seems so erratic. You know, he was uh, getting into it with the the current CEO of Twitter, you know, on Twitter last week, I think. I mean, he apparently has been fixating on how many bots there are on the website. And I think saying that, well, you know, if there's that many fake users, then the amount that I was going to pay for this is actually not fair. I mean, if you read, you know, various publications will, you know, produce these stories that are like inside Elon Musk's plans for Twitter. You read them and, you know, they're basically just reproducing versions of his, you know, uh, shareholder presentation or whatever, uh, whatever the document was. And you know, it's basically consists of a bunch of graphs and stuff where it's like, by this date, we will have this many more users. And by this date, we will have this much more revenue. And this is the thing that has always struck me about Elon Musk is just his like rank mediocrity. There was a clip of him uh, that I heard recently where he was talking about his approach to free speech on Twitter and, you know, not banning people and stuff. And I mean, it goes on for a few minutes, but he is so inarticulate and so unable to communicate in any kind of concrete way what it is that he's actually talking about or how it would work. I guess having your net worth increase by sort of $150 billion or whatever it was, despite not doing anything, can make an already erratic person even more impulsive and erratic, but that seems to be what's happening here. So I would not be surprised if Elon Musk did not in fact end up buying a controlling interest in Twitter. And I think it would just be nice, uh, given how bad he is at tweeting, if we could just find a different uh, main character. We deserve a better quality of Twitter demagogue than either Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, for God's sake. All right, I'll do it. Uh, Speaking of people who are all talk and little to show for it, we are returning to the oeuvre of Dinesh D'Souza. (laughs) 
A long time, the oeuvre, the corpus. <laughs> Long-time listeners may recall that the last time we talked about a Dinesh movie, I think it was his documentary, America, Imagine a World Without Her. Oh, I mean, haven't we done like three? We've done, we've done yeah. Obama's America. We've done Hillary's, Hillary's America. America, which was even scarier, which she was going to do. <laughs> and then, sorry, you just said the title of the other one a minute of like 10 seconds ago, and I've forgotten it already. It's, it's kind of the forgotten one of them. You know, it's the one that gets lost in the shuffle america imagine a world without her what i remember about that one better than anything in the movie was when it came out and underperformed at the box office he said that there was a google conspiracy to keep people from finding showtimes because when you search america in google what do you get you get the wikipedia page for the united states you're telling me his movie's not number one yeah so that that kept a lot of people from the cinemas google's uh, shadow ban of the film uh, but anyway, he he's back. He's better than ever. And even though we swore off him, because by the time we'd watched three, I mean, the problem with those three is they are all just the same movie over and over No, and over but that's again. the problem with Dinesh D'Souza in general, is that he has one, like, D'Souzaism consists of one idea that's extremely stupid, that's, like, applied the same way just over and over again to different things. So we didn't, we thought... There's no more blood to be wrung out of this stone, but he had a new one out uh, that seemed pretty promising to me because this one is controversial even by his standards. The right-wing media, which is normally all over a new Dinesh movie, even even Fox News, even people like Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro have been hesitant to promote this one. And Dinesh, in his best William Castle showman tradition, has been trying to storm up some publicity around this. You know, uh, oh, what what is the corporate media hiding? Are they complicit? Anyway, it's his new film about a shocking conspiracy of voter fraud in the 2020 U.S. presidential election, and it's called 2,000 Mules. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. Let me say it again. The 2020 election was the most secure election in American history. Let me begin by asking a very simple question. Do we know the truth about what really happened in the 2020 election? I think millions of Americans know something went wrong, and they have little pieces, and no one's really put it together. I'm agnostic on this question, and I, I am awaiting more information. If I believed the president were a Nazi, I might steal an election. Bold accusations require bold evidence, and they haven't seen it. We have been working on something big. Show me the money. Can we meet? I've been working with Greg Phillips. He has a deep background in election intelligence. True the Vote has the largest store of election intelligence for the 2020 elections in the world. No one has more data than we do. I guess off the top, we should say a little bit about D'Souza and D'Souza-ism, because as dumb as, you know, D'Souza's arguments are, I mean, he has been pretty successful in proliferating them. He has uh, sold a lot of books. His first movie, 2016 Obama's America, was a hit. It's one of the highest grossing documentaries of all time. Yeah, and if I was to, I guess, posit an explanation for that, or if I had to account for it in some way, I'd say that it's because he speaks effectively to kind of felt need 
needs on the American right in a way that perhaps some traditional conservative reflexes haven't. I mean, the essence of D'Souzaism and his signature move basically involves saying things like, well, did you know that actually, you know, the Democrats and liberals and the American left, which are all synonymous for him, of course, have deep roots, you know, in in the Nazis. And, you know, he had, he had a best-selling book called The Big Lie that basically advanced the version of, like, that thing that every dumb campus conservative would say that was like, well, it was the National Socialist Party. So, you know, what do you want? Well, in all three of the previous movies that we watched, they were all the same movie, basically. They hit the same beats where it's like, well, did you know that the Democratic Party was actually the party of slavery? So when you think which party is actually the racist one, well, this one had deep roots in racism. That, that comes up every single time. Tammany Hall and the corruption in Tammany Hall comes up every single time. It makes a cameo in this movie too. Saul Alinsky, the mastermind of modern left politics, the man who Obama and Hillary Clinton studied at the foot of, always comes out. It's like when John Woo busts out the doves. It's one of those <laughs> authorial trademarks. Right. I mean, so the, the Alinsky stuff, you know, that kind of thing, that I think is more par for the course on the American right. You know, just the, the stupid idea that, I mean, just the stupid and, and you know, totally uh, implausible idea that, you know, somehow these figures like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are, you know, on a secret mission to overthrow the capitalist state and, you know, implement Marxism or something like that. So that part of D'Souzaism isn't novel, but I think what's more novel and what kind of explains his appeal is the fact that his signature move of saying stuff like, well, you know, the Democrats are the real racists, etc. It basically allows him and everyone in his conservative audience to claim uh, everything in the American tradition that by consensus is considered good, and by extension to reject everything that is considered bad uh, and ascribe it to their opponents. And this actually is, I think, you know, somewhat innovative. I mean, the competition, you know, on on what's called the intellectual right is not exactly Herculean, it needs to be said. But I mean, what D'Souza does is a bit of a deviation from some of the things that traditional conservatives have done, right? I mean, so much of, you know, the post-Barry Goldwater conservative movement came as an explicit reaction to things like the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the sexual revolution, etc. And it rejected all of those things kind of explicitly and rhetorically and ideologically. D'Souzaism, on the other hand, right, it doesn't do that, right? D'Souza doesn't look back on the American Civil War, say, and try to make some, you know, ham-fisted argument about, you know, well, it was actually about states' rights, and, you know, that's what the Confederacy was really about. He doesn't try to defend the Confederacy by talking about how, well, property rights are actually important, and here's my extremist libertarian argument for why they should apply to people based on racial lines or whatever. What he does allows him to act like the right has not been on the wrong side of all of these cultural and political battles that it's pretty definitively lost in, you know, the the public imaginary. And I think that's what really explains his appeal and why he's able to basically write the same book and make the same argument in these movies over and over again. This movie, 2000 Mules, opens in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. Seemed like just another normal day in American democracy, or was it? There keep being strange irregularities. There are reports of voter fraud all over the country. We have video evidence of someone offering someone $200 to 
forge a ballot for Joe Biden. We have a woman who was found guilty in the court of law for voting illegally under her mother's name. And yet the courts refuse to hear these cases, including that one, which apparently a court did hear. Uh, The Supreme Court refuses to hear a case to overturn the results in Pennsylvania. But Dinesh knows, you know, I know that there's this ambient feeling going around that something isn't right. How could it be that an incumbent president can fill a 60,000 person stadium, run against a garden variety (laughs) machine politician who barely even campaigned, add 10 million more votes and yet still lose? It doesn't add up. But if you ask these questions, you are shadow banned. Yeah, they're they're gonna they'll demonetize you, which is I think one of the the real underlying complaints of this movie. One of the central conceits is this kind of Congress of the demonetized that he convenes, <laughs> where he gets together Charlie Kirk, Sebastian Gorka, a bunch of other people, Dennis Prager, but, yeah. Larry Elder, the, really the, the mega intelligentsia. <laughs> Yeah, and they all, they all complain about uh, about being shadow banned, which is very funny. All of them have podcasts on Salem Media, but once they, just, just patriotic American citizens, people who aren't coming with any particular agenda, but just see, <laughs> yeah. just see these irregularities that we all see in front of us. <laughs> yeah, all these, all these nonpartisan people who have backgrounds with the Heritage Foundation <laughs> and the MAGA movement, they're just asking questions. That is one of the funniest things about uh, all of Dissu movies. I mean, he has these like particular kind of aesthetics and I guess rhetorical trademarks. And that's one of the funniest ones. He very much tries to do this shtick, which he's like, it's kind of uh, copying, you know, Michael Moore and Roger and me or something like that. But like, he does it very badly, where it's supposed to be this kind of earnest everyman, like I'm just asking questions. Well, when Michael Moore does it, he knows, you know, he's full of shit. He knows that, you know, it's performance art. But Dinesh actually wants you to think that he's open minded. And he's like, well, well, geez, I mean, here I am walking in front of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue looking at the White House and things seem normal to me. Uh, Why don't I ask my intellectual friends, Charlie Kirk and Dennis Prager, what they think? So yeah, he does convene this Congress of... of The Congress of the Demonetized. And they're all there. The movie is kind of like an essay film, like F for Fake, where it has a lot of these disparate nonfiction styles in it. So there's a conversation where Dinesh is just like holding a forum. And he's like, well, I mean, some people would say that it was the most secure election in history. I mean, what would you say to Let, Let's like throw that? it out to the group. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all of them, all of them are saying variations of the, of the same thing. You know, millions of Americans know something was wrong. We just feel it in our bones. Uh, remember, we went to bed that night thinking that Trump had this in the bag, and yet we woke up the next morning, and all of a sudden, the proportions had shifted. All of a sudden, overnight, they kept finding 10,000 new ballots. They, they kept finding all these other ballots that hadn't been counted yet, that <laughs> were then counted. There's a really masterful bit of editing in that section, which is right near the beginning. Very characteristic of Dinesh D'Souza's movies, where there's footage of a cable news pundit talking about the results coming in from a particular state. It doesn't say which state. I didn't pause it long enough to look at it from the shape, but the pundit saying, Trump expanding his majority now with 54%. And like, they're clearly just talking about a red state that Donald Trump won. <laughs> I love that other clip where, where it's like, they've just stopped counting the votes in this state. Well, they stopped counting the votes because they were stopping for the night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they do mention one thing in this Congress of the demonetized. 
that has been an absolute boon to the right, which is this Hunter Biden story. You know, the Hunter Biden laptop story, obviously, and the fact that it was kind of expunged from the internet in various ways. And I mean, there's probably still some discomfort among people in the media to admit this, but I do think that was a pretty clear example of a partisan decision. I mean, I think people did not want that story coming out, which, by the way, if you heard a siren while Luke was talking there, that is the Democratic Party coming to demonetize us. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I may regret what I'm going to say next. But I mean, look, I mean, clearly, some people did not want that story to come out, you know, a few days before the election. And that was a partisan decision in the sense that, you know, they didn't want a repeat of Hillary Clinton's emails. Now, does that in any way reinforce the argument that this movie's making? Obviously not. Well, the problem is there have been so many things like that, or, I don't know, the 2000 election, or all the gerrymandering that we hear of that just contribute to a general atmosphere of distrust in this system, that rightly contribute to an atmosphere of distrust in this system. If there's one thing that everybody sort of ambiently feels, it's it's not necessarily that Trump had the election stolen from him. It's that this system is not always above board. And that's the kind of ambient feeling that someone like Dinesh is able to tap into. That's the kernel of truth. Yeah. And so, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, the history of democratic voter fraud, obviously. I mean, you know, part of the agenda of this movie is to portray voter fraud as something that is, you know, we're just asking questions. And of course, this is bipartisan, but of course, mostly it's liberals that do this. And, you know, he mentions things like the famous Kennedy-Nixon election, which definitely was a stolen election. The Kennedy campaign certainly cheated. But you know why the Nixon campaign didn't make hay out of that is because they also cheated. They just didn't cheat as well. Of course, there's no mention in this movie of the fact that the Republicans uh, not only literally stole the 2000 election, but also did that in Florida doing the exact thing that the Trump team claimed happened on a national level in 2020, which is that they just stopped counting the votes. And you brought it up already, but this is to say nothing of the gerrymandering that has happened in places like Wisconsin. Wisconsin, where, you know, the Democrats get 56% and only get 40% of the seats or something like that. It's true to a certain extent that things like gerrymandering are a bipartisan phenomenon. But I mean, for the Republicans and for the right, this is very much a political project. And a film like this is very much about, you know, helping lay the ideological foundations for that project. I mean, the big irony of this movie is that if you're actually concerned about, you know, voter fraud and irregularities and things like that, the solution is just to federalize elections law, which is something that D'Souza in this movie specifically singles out as, you know, that's what the Democrats are doing to take total control of our elections. But it's the exact opposite of that. I mean, from what I know, I don't know if there are any other countries uh, that do elections in the way that the United States does, where there's this extremely kind of partisanized and decentralized system, individual states have all this power in terms of setting election rules, having the Secretary of State verify the results and things like that. I mean, in many countries, I mean, in Canada, this is certainly the case, you just have a single agency that deals with all of this, you know, they, it draws, you know, in Canada, Elections Canada, Elections Ontario, which is the authority where Will and I live just draws the boundaries in a way which has really uh, never been contentious. And I think, you know, most countries have a version of that. Only the United States, based on what I know, does it this way. And of course, having individual state legislatures, you know, set up all these rules inherently makes processes and the, and the laws governing elections, you know, a partisan thing. And of course, you know, Republicans 
I think more so than Democrats, have really understood this and have taken full advantage of it, which is why, despite winning the popular vote only once since 1988, they've largely kind of set the terms of debate and dominated the political scene, despite representing and channeling all these fringe causes and, you know, losing the popular vote over and over again. We identified in Atlanta 242 mules that went to an average of 24 drop boxes. But Philadelphia alone, we've identified more than 1,100 mules. What is a mule? Person picking up ballots and running them to the drop boxes. This is not grandma out walking her dog. Bad backgrounds, bad reputations. They are interested in one thing, that's money. And in no shape, in no way, in no time, is that legal. This is organized crime. Do you have video evidence? Four million minutes of surveillance video around the country. So Dinesh, intellectually curious as ever, is just examining some of these irregularities when he stumbles upon the acquaintance of Greg Phillips from an organization called True the Vote. (laughs) And this man is a master of data. You can't argue with data. He arranges a little powwow with Greg where they go over some of Greg's findings, and these are alarming allegations. Greg asserts that there has been a coordinated campaign of mules, what he calls mules, who are people who are paid to collect ballots, perhaps fraudulent ballots, it's it's uncertain, but paid to collect ballots, which is illegal, and going from drop box to drop box to drop box, just depositing dozens, hundreds even, of illegal ballots. How does he get this data? Well, all of us have a cell phone, and your cell phone has data that can be sold to the highest bidder. Well, Greg has access to a lot of that data, and he proves with that that people who have gone from one electoral drop box have often gone to other, perhaps even dozens of electoral drop boxes. Now, there have been many debunkings of this film in the in the liberal media, <laughs> which will tell you that, you know, the this data is not reliable. Like if you're within a hundred feet of a drop box, he'll single you out as having visited more than one drop box. The liberal media will also tell you that this movie is full of uh, maps of jurisdictions where they'll put little orange dots on the map that'll say, this is where a drop box is. This is where a drop box is. But of course, that's not actually where they were in that map. None of this really matters. This is just to let you know some of the smears that have been leveled against this movie. Uh, the centerpiece of the film, and I really did enjoy this movie. This is my favorite of all the Dinesh movies. Yeah, you can speak for yourself. For, for, for this section where we see... <laughs> I didn't count, what is it, five maybe surveillance videos of... Well, they claim to have millions of videos, (laughs) and you basically see, I don't know, three, four, five uh, repeated over and over again. And even based on just the information they give you in the movie, these do not stand up to scrutiny at all. What, so, what they're what they're <laughs> claiming that these videos show does not stand up to scrutiny. I, I love this so much. So <laughs> y- you see videos of people who look like very ordinary people ambling up to various ballot boxes, and they put more than one ballot into the ballot box, and then they leave. Now, you may say it's perfectly legal in the United States to pick up an absentee ballot from your relative and take it with you to the polling station. They say that in the film, in fact. But would you believe that these people have been to other ballot boxes? Well, they don't necessarily have proof to back that up. You just get to have to take Greg's word. We only They have millions of videos, but they only have one video each for all of these people. By the way, there are some other classic Dinesh production values in this scene. One of the things that appears in all his movies is these kind of overly dramatized reenactments of, you know, things he's describing. So, you know, famously, 
I can't remember which of his stupid movies it was, but, you know, the one which dealt with the fact that he'd been convicted of election fraud and he'd had, I guess, had to go to some kind of halfway house or something. He had to report to it on like one day a week or something like that. But then when he reenacts that in the film and plays himself, you know, it's... He's in the pen. He's surrounded yeah, by he's, hardened he's criminals. Yeah, he's clapped in irons and he's in the slammer. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, a county judge that put him there. It was Obama, <laughs> you know, personally. So this scene has shades of that because, you know, he's talking to these self-identified election experts and we're seeing them, you know, in this kind of high-tech situation room, you know, wired in with, you know, multiple screens in front of them as opposed to where they probably were when they were doing this work, which was like, you know, using public Wi-Fi at a strip mall or something. (laughs) Yeah, and he'll show us like reenactments of these mules, like coming under cover of night, clad in a hoodie where you can't see their face, sneaking out the backseat of a car and (laughs) dumping ballot upon ballot, like a big Santa's bag full of ballots. Yeah, with with a backpack that says, you know, racist Democratic Party secret fraudulent <laughs> ballots or something. But then you see the the five surveillance videos, and it's just like ordinary people ambling up to the ballot box, and they've got literally two ballots in their hands, and they're putting them in. And then Dinesh and Greg and the whole panel are doing uh, expert yeah, uh, body language it's analysis. Forensic, folks. They're, they're saying, <laughs> now, you see, when people don't want to be seen, they often look to their left and look to their right, or they, they try to they try to get the thing into the box really quickly and then they try to leave really quickly you know <laughs> why am i even trying to debunk what, no it's, there's one there's there's one claim that, i mean they show this one video you know among the millions that they have this one video they they show probably like for half the time i hope the blu-ray has an extra disc where you can see more of the videos yeah where it's got yeah, the Blu-ray will presumably have the other 10 million quintilobytes or whatever whatever made-up unit of data that, that they mention. But they make a great deal of hay out of the fact that there's, you know, this vid- this one video of a woman where she's wearing gloves, and they're like, why would she be wearing gloves? And and it's like, okay, first of all, there was a pandemic, so obviously she's wearing a mask as well. One so- of them says something like, you know, we didn't see these gloves a lot before this election cycle. It's like, yeah, no, no fucking shit, you did. But the other thing is, like, what I love the idea like what is the role that the gloves are supposed to have played in the fraud because like what they're well they'll be dusting for prints on all these ballots to find that the same person had dropped them (laughs) off into into multiple boxes The other thing that I love about this claim is the fact that you can't just, I mean, you can't just make up, like, you can't just invent ballots. Like, you know, elections work with a voter's list, and there's some process of, you know, verifying a ballot, especially if it's a mail-in ballot, and you have to provide certain information and things like that. And this film never satisfactorily, you know, answers the obvious question that's prompted by, you know, all of the issues it purports to raise, which is, okay, so all these fraudulent ballots are cast, you have these people that are paid by a non-profit, which is what they keep saying, you know, a non-profit paid, you know, people from Antifa and BLM or whatever to go and put all these ballots in the drop boxes. But so what I want to ask is, so what's the next thing that happens? I mean, when the ballots are, are counted, how is the fraud overcome what, you know, whatever verification process I- exists? It's not really clear. Well, the movie's purposefully hazy on this because it wants you to think, it wants you to think these are boatloads of fake ballots that have been fakely filled out by fake people. But the movie also knows that it can't 
really justify that. So it also tries to pivot a little bit to saying, well, yeah, they're real ballots filled out by real people, but they've been collected illegally. It's people have been paid to collect them, which is illegal, and they've been going out, and, but more than illegal, it's unethical because what they've been doing is going out to like homeless camps and old age <laughs> homes and uh, the sick and the vulnerable and the needy, people who- And who, Hispanic people and black people as well. Yeah, people who can't even speak English, basically. <laughs> and putting these ballots in front of them. And, and really what we as Republicans want to do is uh, protect the most vulnerable people from vultures like this who are descending <laughs> upon their communities, holding thick wads of Biden bucks in their hands, forcing them to fill out these ballots against their own interests. I mean, this really is the key to the movie, is that it's mounting all of these complaints about fraud, which are clearly just complaints about various kind of voting drives. I mean, someone in the movie specifically says that there are, you know, these various efforts designed to get more people to vote uh, who belong to demographics that were more likely to vote Democratic. And of course, there's this insinuation that, you know, people were pushed and that it's fraudulent and that kind of thing. But I mean, what this is really doing is is just, you know, regurgitating the kind of bullshit that was directed against a group like ACORN, which, you know, famously Obama and the Democrats allowed to be defunded. You know, there's been this longstanding effort on the right to discredit things like voting drives is inherently partisan because, you know, they're often focused on constituencies that are, you know, have historically been less likely to vote Republican. And this speaks to what the real inspiration for a movie like this is. And what all of the various efforts on the right to, uh, you know, discredit election results have really been about. I mean, the kernel of all this is really just the right wing hostility to small d democracy and democracy in general. That's manifested in different ways over time. But I think over the last, you know, five or 10 years, what we've increasingly seen and what's really been kind of in the foreground uh, post Trump is that Republicans don't believe that elections in which they don't win are legitimate by definition. And at the root of that is something that goes back much further in time, which is that they don't believe that certain people voting is legitimate. Now, of course, you could say that like many problems in American politics, there's something bipartisan about this. I mean, after Hillary Clinton lost an unlosable election in 2016, parts of the liberal media spent several years figuring out ways to rationalize and explain that that were very conspiratorial and which offered, you know, any explanation that wasn't uh, Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate and she lost an unlosable election with a bad strategy or whatever. But I think the fact remains that there's only one side of American politics, the right wing side, which has made, you know, a conscious, concerted political strategy out of, you know, Jerry mandering districts and doing voter suppression as part of its efforts to win. I mean, the real problem with a movie like this, notwithstanding, you know, all of the, you know, granular things you might say to debunk its specific claims, is the idea that an organization as ramshackle and incompetent as the Democratic Party could ever pull off a massive voter fraud like this. I mean, these people can barely pass legislation with full control of the U.S. government. You want us to believe that they paid off like hundreds or thousands of random people as part of a, a national scheme to seal an election from Donald Trump? Well, well, they didn't. Their funding arm, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and George, and Soros. George Soros. Don't forget George Soros. How, how could I forget you know, the big bad in all of these movies? Uh, they're the ones who are delegated to do that. This is jaw-dropping. What you showed is frightening. It's just sickening to me. Now we come to the most important question of all. Was the magnitude of vote trafficking enough to tip the balance in the 2020 presidential election? 
Now, this film ended with a little segment that seems so germane to our podcast. I got to think that Dinesh has been listening and that he was trying to throw us a bone here because at the very end of the film, the Congress of the Demonetized reconvenes. And by this point, by the way, they've convinced there's some guy, I, I cannot remember his name. There's some guy who's like the token, well, I think the election was fair. Let's like, you know, let's move on kind of guy. That's him at the start of the film. By the end of the film, he's been thoroughly convinced. That, that's called a character arc. You see, that's good <laughs> filmmaking. Dinesh has been reading his Robert McKee. <laughs> But so at the end of the film, they're all sitting around and I think it's Charlie Kirk and Charlie Kirk and Sebastian Gorka are sort of saying things like, well, you know, the thing about a film like this is, you know, despite the efforts to ban it, this can move the Overton window, you know, this might not have a direct impact now, but you know, it's going to, it's going to get the message out there. And, you know, that can, that can change things down the road. I mean, look what Michael Moore did. Uh, look what Al Gore did with climate change. You know, we stand on the shoulders of these giants. <laughs> I hope this movie is at least as effective as Michael Moore and Al Gore were on those issues. <laughs> yeah, here's to D'Souzaism in our lifetime, folks. <laughs> and the bad guys get the benefits. Rest of us pay their way. Patriots are under attack just for having their say. While I'm riding down Freedom Road, agents on my tail. You wave a flag on Christmas Day, they'll throw you in jail, hey! Oh, na, 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 na. This country's yours and mine. It's the home of the brave and free. It's the place for you and me. Oh, na, 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 na. It's only a matter of time till we get things back on track. Our values are under attack. Don't matter if you're black or white, there's a difference between wrong and right. It's written down for all to read. That's the U.S. Constitution, it's all you need.